1: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
2: This is Chris Dorsey on the Impact Outdoors podcast. We had a, a, a Tom out in the, far out in this field we're on the edge of, and got the caller going, and he's coming, I mean he's coming like 500, 600 yards across this field. So it was kind of cool to watch, but then he gets, he gets just out of range and it's like, where's this bird that's been making this call, you know? And I'm like going oh, decoy, where's the decoy? <laughs> you know, we need a decoy. So it's, you know, he hung up out there. We never did get that bird, but I went back at the camp and, and uh, talked to the, uh, talked to the outfitter. I said, hey, do you have any decoys here? Cause I'm thinking a decoy would be really handy. He says, no, but I've got an old skin. And uh, that, that one of the hunters left because they just wanted to take one bird back, not two. And I've got some some styrofoam. Maybe we can make one, you know. So we fashioned this, you know, what the guy dubbed is the walking dead turkey. And, uh, but it, it was, I mean, it was the ugliest decoy you have ever seen. I mean, it was just, you know, just like, it was like a taxidermy nightmare is what it was. And, uh, but nevertheless, it was something. You know, we had something. So we took, the, you know, the jungle and parked it in this little bit of an opening and set up. And sure enough, we got a bird coming in. And that bird fixates on that decoy. And I'm just between laughing and, and uh, trying to aim, we finally got that bird. But without that decoy, you know, they're kind of looking at you like, I can see everything here. There ought to be a bird. Where is the bird, right? So anyway, I think we, we might have revolutionized turkey hunting in the U.S with the novel
0: idea of a decoy anyway it was fun hey everybody welcome back to this week's episode here at impact outdoors podcast and we have got the one and only chris dorsey on this week's show and I'm super excited to have chris on the podcast today Um, we talked about all kinds of stuff in the outdoors world and if you aren't familiar with chris's name if you've watched any outdoor television in the last 20 plus years you've obviously seen some of his work he has hosted numerous hunting tv shows on all different channels and been in the uh, print media world he's also worked at ducks unlimited and done all kinds of awesome things in the conservation world and uh, just all-around great guy family guy huge ambassador for the sport of hunting and fishing across the world and uh, really bringing the hunting and fishing world to the mainstream you know it's really hard to break into to new people in in this uh, current world we live in and uh, chris does an amazing job with that through all the production stuff he's involved with and uh, he obviously is, is president of dorsey pictures and uh, they have numerous projects going on all across tv and stuff and uh, you know, Chris has been really blessed to work with a number of amazing people, leaders in the industry, you know, celebrities, and all this cool stuff. And uh, really, you know, we touch on a few of those things. You know, he's even got um, a brand new IMAX film coming out um, that's uh, actually narrated by none other than Batman Michael Keaton himself. So we will talk t- about that and a bunch of other awesome stories. And, um,. But with that being said, let's go ahead and jump right into this week's episode here with Chris Dorsey. Hey everybody, we just want to remind you again that we are now part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective where you can get all the latest hunting and fishing podcasts from across the country all in one place. All you've got to do is go to anywhere you listen to your podcast at. look up The Collective, hit subscribe, and you'll start getting this content delivered straight to your phone. So get signed up today and be a part of the movement. Well, Chris, welcome to Impact Outdoors Podcast. I'm super excited you're on the show with us today. Derek, great to be here for having me. Awesome. And are you out in, uh, back home right now in Colorado or out yeah, back
2: lunch? in, uh, back in the office in Denver and, uh, wishing I was someplace else right now, but this is fun. I get to talk to you. So that's a good time.
0: There you go. Well, thanks for being on again, man. I really appreciate um, doing this for us. And, uh, um, we've got a wide array of things we could talk about today, but the first thing I really wanted to get and talk with you, I've, I've watched your shows you know, over the years and, and, and well aware of all the stuff, the great stuff that you've produced and put out there and, uh, and real big proponent for conservation and, and hunting and uh, educating people about that. But um, I really wanted to learn about kind of your background, like growing up, like what was it that got you into this outdoors in general and then in the industry and the TV production and things like that?
2: Yeah, you know, I've always wanted to avoid honest work, so it's uh, what, what could I do to parlay my uh, my vocation and my avocation together? And and uh, you know, I really started started writing. I guess that was kind of the the initial deal. And in, in uh, college at uh, University of Wisconsin Stevens Point, where I was a biology major and natural resource major, English major as well. Um, just started writing for Outdoor Magazine, sold a piece to Glenn Sapier at Field and Stream Magazine, started writing a, a column for the Wisconsin State Journal out of Madison, which was the second largest newspaper in the state. I think it was a sophomore in college at the time, edited the student newspaper. So, really got into the kind of the whole communication side of the, the equation, but I still really had this passion for the outdoors and conservation. And, and uh, so, ended up with a kind of a double major with English and natural resource management. And uh, what do you do with that? Right. And, and so I started working at uh, game and fish magazines out of college, done uh, Atlanta, Georgia. It was David Morris, interestingly, who had hired me And many, many years later, we, we brought David on to host Bucks of Tecumati TV for one of our series. So we yeah. reconnected. He was a great guy and spent a lot of time in Texas. And uh, you know, he's, he's one of my, one of my dear friends, terrific fella, all the way around. But that was really kind of the genesis of of my baptism into the outdoor space was really in the media side. I interned at at Hunting Magazine for Craig Boddington out in Los Angeles, and then went to to Game and Fish magazines. Worked there for about four years. Craig called me up and said, "Hey, we've got an opening at Hunting Magazine. Would you like to come out here? You know, kind of big adventure, hunting the world." Kind of, kind of stuff and I you know young single guy I can go anywhere and uh, so went to went to LA as odd as that seems yeah to, uh, to be working on a hunting magazine in Los Angeles but that's what I did but I was there for about five or six years and then Matt Connolly who ran Ducks Unlimited uh, had just moved the organization from Chicago from Long Grove Illinois down to Memphis Tennessee said look we're doing a bit of a reset on the magazine we'd really like to get more hunting, in, in, in addition to the conservation, into DU Magazine. So I ended up moving to Memphis, Tennessee, and worked on the magazine, ended up editing the magazine, then became a, a group manager over the magazine, you know, the Great Outdoors Festival, all the educational stuff, the radio series. And, uh, and I think it was, I think it was 28 or 29 as a group manager at, at uh, DU, which would be the equivalent to a senior vice president. So everybody else in the room, all the other group managers were about 60 years old. And here's this punk, you know, sitting here talking about media stuff. And, uh, but we had a lot of fun, you know, and Matt was, uh, was really a visionary in conservation to this day. He's a great friend of mine. And we, we try and fish together once or twice a year. And he lives, he's retired now, of course, and lives in in the Boston area. And, and, uh, but a great mentor of mine and, and, you know, dear friend as well, and, so that's kind of, you know, that's kind of where that went. And then Bob Peterson called. He had just purchased Sports of Field magazine from Hearst magazines in in uh, New York and said, Look, you know, Doris, I need a I need a guy to come out and run this magazine. And I said, Well, yeah, okay, back to Los Angeles. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> and uh, anyway, we ended up doing the deal and and I love Sports of Field. I had written for it previous to obviously being hired as the as the editor, I think it was 32 years old when I became the editor-in-chief of Sports Afield under Peterson, which was the uh, the youngest editor in the history of, of that 125 year old magazine, 150 year old, whatever it is now. It's the second oldest outdoor magazine in the world behind the field of London. And uh, so anyway, I had a lot of fun there, created a TV series around the magazine, Sports Afield Magazine, right. and really thought at that point, Derek, kind of all the advertising shift out of print going into television at the time. Now this goes back 20, probably close to 25 years ago now. So it was really at the genesis of the outdoor networks Mm -hmm. really coming online. ESPN, it, it sort of created a bit of an outdoor block at that point. TNN back in the the Nashville network days before it became Spike TV, before it became, paramount which is what it is now Mm -hmm. and uh so it was really early in the game and and uh, i said boy it seems to me there's an entire business here just connecting the brands to television and uh and that's when we formed at the time orion entertainment and uh and that launched gosh we've done 56 series now in the outdoor space alone and then about seven seven to 10 years ago we created really a a focus on mainstream cable programming so it's building alaska building off the grid and tiny house big living all these shows that we we've created in the mainstream space and that's when we founded our company just over 20 years ago now yeah and pictures is is now one of the larger factual production companies in the world we're a global 100 company
0: that's crazy and uh yeah, we, uh, I just had Coz Strickland from Mossy Yoke on the show a few weeks well, back. I, and um, he's, he's one of my favorite guys. I oh mean, if man. you don't
2: know Koz Strickland, man,
0: you, yeah. you got a problem. He's just a terrific fellow. Oh, just, yeah, just, you know, it's like him and Bill Dance, man. I mean, they're just two of the nicest yeah. guys and, you know, basically created, you know, helped start all this stuff, you know, like when you were talking about in the 80s and stuff. And, yeah. and um, we were talking about TNN so much, you know, and how, I mean, that was just, everybody's magnet if you love the outdoors every weekend you were watching tnn 24 7 i mean nascar hunting fishing everything you wanted was on that channel and, well uh, and,
2: and you talk talking about those two guys i mean between cuz and, and bill dance i mean they were they were kind of the faces of, of that network in, in yeah. prime. and i mean they were doing huge numbers too i mean 1.2 1.3 million viewers of every show i mean that's those are the kind of numbers that that the top end cable networks do in prime time right now. So yeah. it's, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting deal. And Bill danced a funny story about Bill, obviously DU being in Memphis, Bill lives mm-hmm. out outside of Memphis. Um, but I was in charge of the great outdoors festival. DU put on 50, 60,000 people to come through that event, but Bill would come and he would stay in the fishing village and I mean, it's Memphis, Tennessee, and, and it was hot. I mean, yeah. let me tell you, steamy hot. And there's Bill out there, just beat red, got the Tennessee ball cap on, and he's got a cubby of kids around him, like, all day long. And that guy was the hardest-working guy in the outdoors. I mean, it was unbelievable to watch him. He's a fantastic fellow. Both those guys are really two of the best guys in the industry, in my opinion.
0: Yep, yep. I remember the first time I met Bill. It was so surreal because we, uh, my wife and I had – uh, went to iCast for the very first time and i think it was like yeah. 2015 or something like that and uh and he was just standing over there by himself which is unheard of you know when he's yeah. at those shows i mean there's just people all over over him and uh we got to talk to him for almost 30 minutes and spend that time with him and it's just like talking to your favorite uncle or something you know and yeah. uh great yeah, great guy and, good ambassador yeah, J- for the sport
2: yeah sure is
0: so but uh but yeah and um did you, did you do a lot of hunting and fishing growing up? You know, I mean, like, you're yeah, doing now, you know,
2: I, I grew up on a farm in Southern Wisconsin and, and, uh, we had access to really good hunting out the back door. So I was, you know, I, I, I just thought everybody had, you know, that kind of access, but, you know, now of course I know it was a pretty, pretty rarefied air to be able to do that kind of stuff. But I had a bird dog, you know, I used to, I used to, to field trial and, and raise and train English setters and, and had a really great dog, but we had access to wild pheasants out the back door in in Southern Wisconsin. So this dog, I mean, I literally would take that dog out every day for like two hours after school and, you know, before football practice or whatever, and, and get that dog out. So he was just a brilliant, brilliant hunting dog. And then I started getting into these, these hunting dog field trials. And again, I'm, you know, I got that dog when I was like 12 years old and, and he lived to be 20, almost 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And so wow. I had that dog for a long, long time. And uh, when he was seven, you know, it won that dog won seven field trials in a row. First place finishes, not, you know, not just placing, but, but one of them, just mopped up the field. I mean, he was just kind of a buzz in that, that Southern central Wisconsin region, you know, again, these are hunting dog stakes. It wasn't the big time yeah. professional stakes, but it was fun. And, yep. uh, And I would deer hunt, of course, we did it as a family and my father was not a big hunter at all, but my older brother, I'm the youngest of nine kids, I had an older brother who really took me out a lot. And, uh, and he was kind of a father figure in the outdoors and, and, uh, it was, you know, just great fun. You know, we lived it. it it wasn't really what we did. It was who we, we were, you know, and we loved game meat. We ate a lot of game meat growing up and pretty organic stuff. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Nine kids, huh? That's a big family. That's awesome. Yeah. Good, good, good family. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Man, how many deer did y'all usually harvest a year?
2: You know, it it was interesting. Good years, you know, we'd get six or seven and,
0: uh,
2: lean years. It was more like two or three kind of depending on, you know, we got to be pretty good at it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, took a lot of ducks and pheasants and, yeah. Squirrels and rabbits and everything
0: else, you know. Yeah. Deer are a lot bigger up there than they are down here. So and, and yeah. especially the hill country.
2: <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, they're pretty beefy up north, no yeah.
0: doubt. Yeah, my wife's from Missouri, central Missouri, near Columbia, and uh we I hunt up there at her family farm, you know, when time allows during the holidays and stuff. And uh we uh I shot a pretty nice buck this past Thanksgiving and knew it was a decent deer, but couldn't really tell. It was kind of back in the brush when I had shot it. And, and, uh, it took me, my wife and my two little kids, all four of us to drag that thing out of the woods. And, um, you know, when you shoot a deer, it's 250 to 275 pounds versus, uh, 80 to hundred pound white tail in Texas, where we, yeah. you know, that's a big yeah. difference. So, um, yeah. that was basically all the meat we needed for the whole year almost, but, but uh, yeah but
2: they got a lot of a lot of good hunting i tell you what missouri yeah. in addition to whitetail hunting big turkeys lots of turkeys i mean it's a it's a really sportsman friendly state no doubt yeah. about it
0: yeah have you got to do any turkey hunting this spring
2: you know i i didn't i got down to the yucatan last year to finish up the world slam on turkeys mm-hmm. i hunted uh, the oscillated turkey down there where we filmed the show um but it, uh, I've got two, I've got twin boys who are 16, and uh, they shot their first turkeys when they were 12 yeah. with Steve Ferris, you know, from Mr. Mr. Eddie Money, he's a guitarist, mm-hmm. friend of ours who has a, a couple of farms out in Nebraska. So we were talking about going back to Nebraska, hunting with Steve again, kind of doing the, you know, the second take, get, getting those guys out. But yeah, yeah, fortunately, I just didn't get out for, uh, for turkeys this spring. That's mm-hmm. a... Uh, It's like
0: the first time, probably 10 years I haven't hunted turkeys. Yeah, it's, it was, uh, our schedule was insane this year. We I got, my goal was to take my daughter on her first turkey hunt this year. She's, um, seven. And we finally got that a couple weeks ago. We came, we were so close to pulling (laughs) the trigger on one. And I was so proud of her because she's very young, but she's very, um, safe and ethical when it comes to shooting. She, she has yet to harvest an animal. But she's an excellent shooter. And um and and we had practiced a lot. We got her a little 410 shotgun, put a little nice. red dot on it. And um we had the turkey come in, you know, about 15 yards from us, and it was so close to us. She had not experienced one that close yet. And and um she had the gun on the turkey, but the turkey finally walked off. And I was like, How come uh, you know, I, you know, what what happened? And she said, Well, the the, um, the red dot wasn't on the neck where you told me to shoot the turkey at. It was down the body. And I was trying to move real slow to raise it up. And she said, so I didn't shoot. And I said, that's the best thing you could have told me, you know, as I'm so proud of you for yeah. that. And, uh, so I can't wait till she gets to harvest her first. And one might be a deer this fall, who knows, but, but you'll you remember
2: that forever. I mean, you talk yeah. about a shared memory that, you know, you'll have together forever. I mean, that's, that's yeah. really how we relate to our kids in the outdoors. You know, if we get them outside and we get them doing stuff, we share those experiences, then you always have that, you know, and, and, uh, and I just, you know, as I got my boys into hunting and fishing, it's really how we relate as a family now. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. that's our, our really best quality time is field time. So yeah. Replace that, you know?
0: Yep. Yep. So why do, I have a question about your oscillated turkey hunt. What is that experience like? Cause that I've never done that. I've heard more and more people are doing that now. Um, but. I mean, how does that whole hunt work for those guys?
2: Well, it it was interesting and a funny story about that is, is about 20 years ago, I went down to Campeche right down to the bottom of the Yucatan in Mexico to, to hunt oscillated Turkey. I was all fired up. This wasn't a TV shoot. It was just a magazine piece running magazine at the time. (laughs) And, and literally the first night into that camp, they had these huge fires all over the Yucatan and it's like the entire Yucatan was on fire smoke from the Yucatan had reached Florida and Georgia and, wow. and all the way into Tennessee and places like that it was a it was kind of a global event wow. but <laughs> literally the first night in this camp and the camp is is basically a couple of tents in the jungle um, a couple of hammocks with mosquito nets and that was the camp right <laughs> And a guy in the middle of the night, I don't even know who it was. If it was the outfitter or just a guy came running into camp, we're all sound asleep, just screaming, fire, fire. And you could smell the smoke, but I, I didn't know if it was like a campfire smoke or what was going on because I was asleep and kind of out of it, you know? And so we just scrambled, pack up the vehicles, get out of there. We got fire on both sides of us. Wow. So anyway, last year was the, you know, was the the comeback story. right? Yeah. I, I really wanted to get one of these one of these stunning birds, you know, they're just such amazing trophies as, as birds. They're, they're outrageously beautiful and and cool and in the environment they occupy is really interesting. And, and so I went back down and took a friend of mine from, from South Carolina down as well. We filmed the show, we brought a couple of camera guys down to really kind of document how cool this whole thing was, but it's, you know, it's interesting because, it's such a monolithic habitat. You know, there's not much edge. There were a couple of fields, you know, that had been broken into the, into the jungle. And, and so they had planted some props. So sometimes we hunted some of the edge, but for the mm-hmm. most part, it's just vast jungle. And these, these Mayans, these short, you know, kind of stout people that have lived there for generations and all that are your guides. And they're, they're really some of the sweetest people you'll ever meet. I mean, they're just really nice you know, friendly, happy people. So they're kind of fun to hang with, speak a little bit of English, yeah. you know, have to say shoot or big and yeah. more more cartridges or whatever. <laughs> um, but it was great. I mean, we had an absolutely fantastic time and found a lot of birds down there and, and the birds early in the morning. And it's, it, it's not really a gobble. It's more of a, it's like a gobble, but it's kind of a gobble meets a whistle sound, you know, and what you're doing is, They're using electronic calls. Uh, They don't really have mouth calls that that work, but they're using a male call. Mm -hmm. So unlike a turkey, a typical turkey, where you're using a hen call to Mm -hmm. attract a a gobbler, this is a male call, and and it's a territorial kind of challenge that brings in, you know, brings in the tom. So it's it's the the first night we had a, a a tom out in the far out in this field we're on the edge of and got the caller going and he's coming I mean, he's coming like five, 600 yards across this field. So it was kind of cool to watch, but then he gets, he gets just out of range. And it's like, where's this bird that's been making this call, you know? And I'm like, going decoy, where's the decoy? <laughs> you know, we need a decoy. So it's, you know, he hung up out there. We never did get that bird, but I went back in the camp and, and, uh, talked to the, uh, talk to the out I said, Hey, do you have any decoys here? Cause I'm thinking, a decoy would be really handy. He says, no, but I've got an old skin and, uh, that, that one of the hunters left because they just wanted to take one bird back, not two. And I've got some, some styrofoam, maybe we can make one, you know, so we fashioned this, you know, what the guy dubbed is the walking dead turkey. And, uh, but it, it was, I mean, it was the ugliest decoy you have ever seen. I mean, it was just, you know, just like, It was like a taxidermy nightmare is what it was. uh, But nevertheless, (sighs) it was something, you know, we had something. So we took, you know, the jungle and parked it in this little bit of an opening and set up and sure enough, we got a bird coming in and that bird fixates on that decoy. And I'm just between laughing and and, uh, trying to aim, we finally got that bird. But without that decoy, you know, they're kind of looking at you like, I can see everything here there ought to be a bird where is the bird right so anyway i think we we might have revolutionized turkey hunting in the <laughs> U- with the novel idea of a decoy anyway it was oh
0: fun Jeez, you'll have to uh, send me a picture of that decoy <laughs> yeah right
2: it, it, it's uh, we made a whole piece of the show about that thing it'll be funny i can't wait to I see the no idea i and guide could speak enough <laughs> to go walking dead you know <laughs>
0: anyways good power the power of tv right yeah there
2: you go there you go
0: that's cool man yeah and uh um that's that's a pretty cool i mean where you're on on the road to getting your your grand slam was that i mean imagine all of them were challenging to, to some point you know i mean in the u.s um between you know the species the subspecies we have here what has been your favorite to chase yeah in terms of turkeys yeah
2: yeah. I, you know, I sure like the Western birds. They, they make me think I'm a better caller than I am. <laughs> you know, those, those Eastern birds, man, I, you know, they're smart. They're savvy. They've been hunted. Mm-hmm. They got good hunters, you know, guys that really know how to call. And, and uh, I remember one time, in fact, you know, growing up in Wisconsin, when I grew up in Wisconsin, we didn't have turkeys. People, people forget that wild turkeys in a big chunk of the United States is really a a fairly recent phenomenon, Mm -hmm. you know, and thanks to NWTF and, and those guys trapping and moving birds, releasing birds, you know, we've now got turkeys everywhere. And, and uh, we got our birds in Wisconsin, I think from Missouri, we, we traded rough grouse to be released in, in uh, Missouri. And we got wild turkeys and, and I think Wisconsin might've, might've gotten the better deal on that one because turkeys have just taken off and, uh, done really well. But I, I never grew up hunting turkeys in, in Wisconsin. So the first time I hunted turkeys was was kind of like, you know, it was kind of like taking your first uh, batting practice at Yankee Stadium because I was working for Hunting Magazine. Boddington said, Dorsey, I need you to go down to Southern Sportsman Lodge. They're putting on this turkey hunting deal. It's it's uh, David and Harold, you know, from Nightingale. You know, it was cause not cuz Strickland, it was Toxie uh, mm-hmm. from uh, from Osio Oak. And then it was Preston Pittman. Um, Eddie Salter was down there. I mean it Larry Norton, I mean it was the who's who of the yep. turkey. And here's this punk who's never even on a turkeys before. I think I was twenty-three <laughs> or twenty-four, right? And uh, and so first up I get uh, I get Toxie. Toxie's guiding me and and I'm like, Toxie, I know the theory of this whole deal, So, but just coach me, man. I know you grew up with these birds. I didn't. And uh, so sure enough, first morning, beautiful morning. It's kind of this fog is in the low country down there, and, and uh, we get a big gobbler just thundering all the way in, you know? And I can't see him until he just sort of steps out from behind this screen of trees. Toxie's like 20 yards behind me, trying to draw him a little closer, you know, by right. being further away, you know, the old trick. And I'm just, I'm just vibrating. I mean, I, I just like that could have been King Kong coming through the forest, man. And it, uh, you know, the magic of turkey hunting was distilled in that moment for me because it was, it was electrifying. I mean, and it's still like that for me. I still love turkey hunting, but this bird gets out there and it's just a silhouette. I mean, it's a ghost against the, the back, backlit fog and he's gobbling and I can see steam coming out as he's gobbling. I'm just, I'm, I'm so mesmerized. I don't know what's going on. Right? I'm just like, you know, trying to figure, Oh yeah, I'm supposed to shoot this thing. And I'm thinking, is it close enough? And, you know, and I'm just so enraptured in, in, in by the moment. I just can't even focus on pulling the trigger. Right. I'm just glued on this bird. And finally it, it just, Does, uh, of course, I didn't know what the hell it was doing. I'm taking, you know, it's going to come a little bit closer maybe, and I'll (laughs) shoot and say, but it's stretching up like, yeah, something's wrong here. I'm out of here. And I don't shoot. And Toxie comes walking up to me. He just gets even with me, and he paces off to where that bird is. I I think it was like 35 steps. He turns around and goes,
0: don't think you could have hit that, huh?
1: He
2: said, don't worry about it. You'll get over it in about 10 or 12 years. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, that was my baptism on. He's on the next day. It's, it's David Hale, right? He's my guy, but, you know, again, this is, you know, these, these, are the home run guys in the industry. And, and David's like, look, I'm not as good a caller as some of these guys, but I'm telling you, I kill as many or more birds than any of them. Cause I was killing turkeys long before we started calling. Yeah. <laughs> and David's, you know, God bless him. He, he's, you know, one of those, Prince of a guy and just so much fun to hunt with. I ended up killing my first bird with David Hale and, and, uh, I had such a ball. I mean, it was just, these guys knew I was a complete pilgrim on, on turkey hunting and they're just filling me with all the calling techniques and the theory about it and the the magic of it. And yeah, that was pretty, pretty memorable and heady stuff.
0: And I think that's so unique about turkeys, um, because, uh, they just. They do that to people, you know, and, um, I just, yeah. you know, we were just over in junction, Texas, a couple of weeks back with this big event. I did the hunt fish podcast summit. And, um, we had one of my buddies from Ohio down, never Turkey hunted before. He was excited about it. We go out the first night and probably after about 30 minutes, we get a, a call back on one of the calls here gobble. And five minutes later, I see him standing about 300 yards down to our left. Just standing there looking, you know, on the edge of the trees and, and I'm sitting behind them and I'm like, he's down there, he's looking down this way, you know, and, and, uh, so let's just not call for a minute and see if he'll come in. And so he starts inching a little closer and he starts gobbling pretty good. And Paul finally seen him and I just, he'll get a tick, get ticked off with hearing of this, but he just starts vibrating, shaking so bad. He's so nervous and exciting. And I'm sitting in the back and the whole ground's just shaking. And I was like, this is what it's all about, you know? Yeah. Yeah. uh, Just getting that hook in people. So if
2: you don't get like that, then I guess take up golf or something. I don't know. Yeah. I, I get every bit as excited about a turkey coming in thundering through the forest, not seeing it. And then it finally emerges as I do a bull out doing that, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's great stuff. It's it really crazy. Is.
0: And it's a good, you know, as far as I guess, not big game, but you know, game that you're going to hunt and eat and stuff. I mean, it's a great thing to introduce to people initially, you know, even before deer yeah. hunting. So yeah. uh, we've yep. talked about this on several podcasts about how people can, can see themselves, turkey hunting versus deer hunting initially, you know, and mm-hmm. being able to, clean and process a bird versus a deer and, and that kind of thing. So I think that's a, uh, you know, a unique thing about that animal. So it's, it's
2: the spring. It's a nice time of year to be out. There's really nothing else going on. You can, you can pick morel mushrooms as you're doing it and and just have a good time. Yeah. It's,
0: it's great for kids. Yep. Yep. For sure. So, um, I know, uh, you know, you, you've done a lot with ducks unlimited and, th- and things like that. Um, but you were also inducted into the outdoor legends hall of fame, not too long ago. How, how was that experience?
2: Yeah. The induction is actually coming up this, uh, this August and, uh, you know, it was supposed to be last year. And then of course yep. COVID everything off. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's a cool thing from the standpoint that, you know, isn't it nice that somebody, you know, and Gary Mason put this together, he's done a fantastic job, really kind of, kind of honoring the people who have, who have contributed to the whole category, to the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And it just sort of celebrates that space, I think. And and it's really a chance to come together and, and figure out what can we do as a community, right? I mean, yeah. let's bring the leaders together and talk about you know, what it is we need as an industry, how do we communicate our lifestyle to the mainstream? And, and two years ago, when I got the uh, the Ray Scott Award from the same group, you know, that was my talk. My talk was really, because it was most of the industry was there, right? Industry leaders, Toxie and Cuz and all those guys, the Drury's, you know, speaking of other great guys, the Drury's are really great guys too. Yep. You know, just, just having all those people together in, in sharing ideas about how do we communicate our space, our community, our conservation story, and how do we define ourselves, as opposed to allowing animal rights and, and anti-hunters to us to the mainstream. Mm-hmm. That's really been a big theme I've been focused on for the last few years. It's just kind of a personal passion. You know, I don't, I don't make most of my living in the outdoor space anymore, but it sure as heck where my, my passion lies. And I still serve on conservation boards and things like that. And, yep. and try and advise on the media side, how do we take our story to the mainstream? And, and, uh, so it's always good when you can bring those people together and have those kinds of higher level discussions, I think about how to, how to make sure it endures and, and, and we can push back on those who, who would like to
0: see us go away. Yeah. Well, yeah. let's, let's chat about that briefly. You know, that's a, um, A huge thing these days, social media. You know, I mean, we talked about how the the changing of of how we get the content out to people. You know, moving from print to TV, now to posting on social media is is it's where it's at. It seems like today, and and the audience is is really consuming that information, but. You know, um, I know you do a lot of trips to Africa, you know, and that's always a hot topic, you know, I mean, and I think people just don't understand the, the logistics and, and the, the benefits that come with going and, and hunting in these other countries and stuff. Can you touch a little bit on, on your experiences with that and then how that all yeah, works? For sure. I mean,
2: look at, you know, the old axiom around the world is, is, uh, in the conservation world is wildlife that pays stays. If, if wildlife doesn't have an economic value to those who live around that wildlife, typically it will not exist. And and in the case of Africa, you know, if, if there is no benefit to the local communities to have elephants and lions and, and leopard and Buffalo around, they're snared, they're shot and they're poisoned. And that's exactly what happens throughout most of Africa. So once once you have hunting concessions where people are paying to go hunt those species, money flows into those communities. People are employed. Meat is dispersed to them. And uh, and that creates value to those animals. Otherwise, you know, elephants come in and they're crop raiders. They destroy crops. They destroy fencing. Uh, Lions come in and they kill people in addition to livestock. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there really is no value to them to the local communities and that's that's the equation that's missing in most of the debate and so much of the animal rights anti- hunting narrative is emanating out of Western Europe the UK even Australia to some degree the US but I would say mm-hmm. principally Western Europe and Australia seems to be kind of a hotbed of where so much of this really mm-hmm. you know, The vehement animal rights activism is coming from. And what they're missing, of course, is if you want to benefit wildlife, allow hunting to continue. That's what's going to drive success in wildlife conservation. And there's tons of examples of that. Conversely, there's plenty of examples of you take away hunting and you've signed the death warrant to, to many of those species. Case in point would be Kenya, where Dr. Richard Leakey, of course, famously banned elephant hunting. And I wrote about this in my director's cut big game book, but he banned elephant hunting and and brought in, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of of ivory, you know, and and just created a giant bonfire, invited all the world's media in to say this is the end of this is the end of elephant hunting, this is the way forward, we're going to conserve and save elephants, no more slaughter of, of the elephants. Well, what happened then? What happened was all the hunters all the anti poaching teams were taken off the land and so the poachers moved in mass and they've slaughtered the elephants across yeah. kenya they, you know they they've got a fraction remnant population of what they once had when they had hunting and uh, so the southeast asian syndicates which which buy this ivory create the economic demand poachers come in transaction happens in africa they ship it offshore to China to uh, Vietnam to other places in, in Southeast Asia and they're doing it with rhino they're doing it with all sorts of species in addition to rhino and elephant but it, it, it's been devastating and of course you saw that happen in Botswana six or seven or eight years ago they, they decided to close down elephant hunting and uh, same thing happened right it, it was poachers came in started whacking the elephants and and taking the ivory offshore and And uh, just recently Botswana to their great credit said, this has been terrible. It's been terrible for our people. It's been terrible for our wildlife, especially our elephants. We've got to reinstate carefully controlled elephant hunting. And they've done that now against a lot of global pressure. Um, So I think it's really important that we tell that story, right? That we, we tell the story not to you and I, but to the mainstream. And, and so part of my talk in at the uh, Legends of the Outdoors convention deal was, was really talking about how do we mainstream our, our narrative? You know, where, is, where are our Super Bowl ads for the outdoor lifestyle? Where's our, our sustained on scale media campaign in the New York Times, Washington Post? Why are we buying ads in the Wall Street Journal? Why don't we have a speakers bureau of camera ready people that really know what they're talking about who can be very articulate. So the next time there's a Cecil the lion issue, boom, we can tell the real story. Let's tell the real story of of lions in Africa, which is basically if they are not sport hunted, they are a nuisance animal, they're wiped out, they're snared, they're poisoned, they're shot. And that's exactly what happens to lions in Africa. So you may not like the fact that a dentist from Minnesota shot this lion that had a name but here's the reality, right? Let's at least tell the reality of what's going on out there that hunters are the only ones creating any economic viability to lions going forward. Otherwise they're relegated to the parks and that's it. And and so we miss that opportunity. I think as an industry, instead of playing turtle, pulling our head in and our legs in and hoping the storm passes, we need to use those opportunities as I've said in many forums, as opportunities to tell our story, everybody is is looking at it and questioning what's happening. And we have a great story to tell, but we have to we have to tell it. We have to be engaged, and we've got to do it on scale, and we've got to sustain it to the mainstream, not not just to our own community. And that's, you know, that's a message that is resonating now. You're you're hearing a lot more of the industry talking about. Look, we've got to. We've got to tell our story. We've got to take it out. We've got to define ourselves and not let everybody else, the antis, especially define us.
0: Yeah. And I think that's been, um, I mean, it's the easy route, right? To go and and tell our friends who hunt and fish and things, you know, like all the great things about hunting and conservation. But like you said, exactly like you said, you know, getting to people that don't know anything about it, you know, that's where the misconceptions lie and 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 the problem is and and um i know um you know talking about super bowl ads you know when i seen johnny morris's ad that ran this past year i was blown away to see that on there It was pretty pretty surreal yeah johnny you know johnny morris
2: has obviously done tremendous things for our whole category and and by virtue of the size of bass pro and cabela's now i mean he has has a really unique position i think to help in that whole enterprise and and yeah when i saw the bass pro ad you know it, again it was a soft kind of you know we all need to get outdoors we need the outdoors but yeah. but good for him i mean what a what a tremendous you know here's a bunch of people that love the outdoors it was a really well done ad and it was in a forum that you know a big chunk of the planet was watching so isn't
0: that cool yeah it was it was, it was really cool so Um one of the things I wanted to ask you about, um talking about you know know, this production TV stuff and is uh wings over water. Yeah. And um I just watched the the trailer again on YouTube while I go and when is this coming out? Tell us about it. I cannot wait to see the full thing. And you know, having Batman on there with Michael Keaton (laughs) narrating is just unbelievable. So tell us about this this
2: yeah, it, it, it's a cool project. It really came from the genesis of the whole thing was from a, a meeting that the Max McGraw Foundation, Charlie Potter and, and his group out of Chicago put together of kind of all the all the wetlands, waterfowl conservation groups in the country mm-hmm. um, held this deal. And I was brought in as a kind of a token media guy. It's like at, at some point we're going to have to talk about this you know, spread our message and all that kind of stuff. So that's why I was there. And, and we landed on this notion afterwards that, you know, nobody knows about the prairie pothole region, right? It's if you're a duck hunter, you know about it. But if you're not a duck hunter, you don't conceptualize the prairie wetlands, the prairie pothole region, like people might the Amazon in South America or the Serengeti in Africa. And, and how do we then brand this ecosystem, this 275,000 square mile, you know, ecosystem that is so incredibly vital to 70% of the water birds in North America. It's got no brand, which means most people don't know about it and don't care about it. So how do we make sure they care about it? How do we give that a brand? And, and so an IMAX film, when you, when you develop an IMAX film, it's, it's much more than just a film because there's all sorts of earned media that surrounds these films. They stay in theaters for up to a decade. And, and there's curriculum that goes into the school systems as part of it. And uh, so it's, it's really starting a movement as opposed to just making a film. And so I look, it's a, it's a brilliant film. You know, we have really talented filmmakers come in and yeah, getting Michael Keaton, Birdman, Batman, uh, to, to do it. And Michael's a huge conservationist. And, yep. and we've done a series, a fly fishing series with Bonefish Tarpon and Trust called uh, Buccaneers and Bones, Tom Brokaw, Michael Keaton, Huey Lewis, Liam Neeson, all these guys are were part of that series. And uh, so he's, you know, he's a, a friendly, a friend of ours. And he was totally on board to do it. He did a brilliant job, by the way. I just, just listened to his read. And you, know, you might imagine an Academy Award nominated guy doing a job. And uh, but it's 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 going to be a spectacular film. And Ducks Unlimited came in, uh, Audubon came in, and really supported it. A bunch of major donors from those those uh, organizations as well. Adam Put- Putnam, who now runs Ducks Unlimited, really sharp guy, very savvy guy, um, is really championing that through Ducks Unlimited as well, and and really gets the big picture and. And so it's been fun. I mean, it's a really great group of leaders and in the conservation community that came together. And so we're looking at this and going, let's see how this goes, but it looks to me like this is a model we can employ kind of in other areas of conservation, Right. you know, the camel coalition and beyond. And uh, so we're excited about that. You know, it's, it's number one, it's a fantastic film. You know, I think starting in September, October, maybe October, November, we're going to do a 60 city tour with basically just members of Audubon and Ducks Unlimited and the Max McGraw people doing a special invite only kind of a tour. And then early next year is when it'll start its full theater release.
0: Yeah. Well, if y'all, if y'all get down here for the 60 city tour in Houston, let me know. So I, I gotta oh, yeah. believe it's on that list for yeah, sure. I, I believe yeah. that would that would be awesome. So, um, really looking forward that's to that. Good like that. yeah, so yeah. But um, so, um, you know, what are some of the? Uh, have you got any other big projects that you can talk about? You're currently working on or stuff that's you coming know, up we, soon? Or
2: we've always got a lot of fun stuff going on, and in, in, uh, in, in the outdoor space. Uh, you know, it's been fun. I just finished up a trilogy of books, three different books that, uh, you know, Sporting Classics and Wild River Press produced. And, and the first one was called Director's Cut. And the second one is uh, Casting Calls. Director's Cut is all big game hunting around the world. Mm-hmm. Casting Calls all fly fishing around the world. And the next one coming out in July is, is Call Time, which is wing shooting around the world. And these are big coffee table productions that we had really great photographers travel with us really over the span of 10, 15 years to create a massive library of really stunning images. But we also filmed uh, television shows at these same locations where the chapters that are written. So we, we've got these companion film sets. So when you buy the book, uh, it, let's say you're mountain Yala hunting in Ethiopia There's a a 10 minute film about mountain and yellow hunting in addition to the chapter in the book, in addition to amazing still photography in a really stunning package. So that's, that's been a, uh, that's been a fun project, been a lot of work, but a lot of really great talented folks involved in that. So that's, you know, that's a, you know, that's a fun project. And the fact that massive video library and still library that's really the only reason we could do something like that. I don't think anybody's really ever done it because nobody could really afford to do it unless they already had kind of TV productions and and still photographers on location doing it. Yeah. But it worked out and it's been well received.
0: Yep. So well, is there I know you've traveled all over the world, got to do a lot of stuff. I've watched some of the videos you've done with your family and stuff with the boys and wife and everything. And is there any place that you haven't been to yet that you're really wanting to go to or?
2: Yeah, you know, it, it's, you always got to have something, right? I mean, right. you know, you got something to look forward to and, but, but, you know, a lot of it for me now is, is really just getting out there with my boys. You know, I mean, I, I love hunting and fishing with my boys and, and I took one of them down to the Bahamas a, about a month ago and and he's really become a, an accomplished double haul fly caster and he ties his own nice. fly. And, uh, so the first time we went, I think he was 10 or 11 and, or 11 to 12. And, and, uh, he couldn't really double haul. And I told him, I was trying to explain to him, buddy, you're going to have to learn to haul the flats are not like trout fishing where you can just, you know, and, uh, it's like, yeah, yeah, dad, whatever. He was a lot like me, you know, you, you have to, you have to go through a little suffering before you learn. Right. Uh, but that, that planted such a seed because he was so frustrated not being able to get that fly to the bonefish that he could see. And uh, so we came back and he just practiced and practiced and practiced. He grew about seven inches. He's six foot three now and he can haul. And I mean, he can double and he's accurate. So he caught fish after fish and I just sat in the boat and watched him. And I just, I I had so much fun just watching him, you know, Mm -hmm. set the hook on, on fishing in general, not just bonefish, Mm -hmm. that it was really, and that, that to me is, it's really what turns my crank now.
0: Yeah. That's the uh, kids, man. I love taking my kids fishing and the fact that my daughter's yeah. getting into hunting now and stuff. I'm so excited about what the future holds, you know, and
2: yeah. And it, uh, it's just mean, you know, in that connectivity with, with doing that. And, and, uh, yeah, I wish I had a daughter cause I, I would have loved to have gotten a daughter into the outdoors as well.
0: And,
2: mm-hmm. you know, daddies and daughters, that's a pretty special bond. You know?
0: Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a fun, fun time for sure right now. So, well, um, yeah. Well, Chris, I know we've been on here close to an hour, but um, I want to thank you for all you've done over your career up to this point and what you've got coming ahead. And uh, you're a great ambassador. I've always enjoyed all your work. Um, where can people find out about what's going on with you specifically um, and, and kind of keep keep up with Dorsey Pictures and all the projects y'all work on? Yeah, with?
2: you know, I mean, Dorsey Pictures, uh, uh, dot com is, is the website where you see a lot of our mainstream productions. If you're interested in the outdoor stuff, really, Sporting Classics, TV, um, Instagram, Facebook, and all those, and in Sporting Classics, the magazine, we we cover a lot of stuff that we're doing in television goes into the magazine as well. And you know, it's such a such a high class magazine. We're really delighted to be a part of any kind of association with Sporting Classics, and it's a great group. I mean, they're really good guys, and and do such a great job with the magazine. So it's fun to be a part of that
0: so well that's that's awesome and uh, like i said thank you for taking the time to be on today so um and let's 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 do it again man yeah so maybe we can get you down here to texas next year who knows i'd love to do so, that so all right well thanks chris cheers bud take care all right
1: Days with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor your entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it, a life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life.
0: Yeah, baby, 6'8 Western. Oh, mule there, baby, right there.
1: Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.